The scripture this morning is Joshua chapter 3, the first 13 verses. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua today, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Gigashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. This is the word of the Lord. So in Deuteronomy chapter 9, when Moses had gathered the people of Israel on the plains of Moab, that's that area east of the Jordan River and sort of encircled by the mountains over there. He said to them, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. 
Now, of course, it would be a little bit more than a month after that day before the people of Israel would actually make the crossing over the Jordan. Moses had to finish this reiteration of the law of God that is the book of Deuteronomy, and then it was time for a final blessing of the people of Israel, and after laying hands on Joshua to ordain him as the leader of Israel, Deuteronomy 34 tells us, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So a month goes by from that time when Moses tells the people of Israel that God who goes over before them is a consuming fire. And then as we saw last week in Joshua chapter 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. But even though Moses had died and Joshua had become the new leader of the people of Israel, that promise that God made was still valid. He who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. I know that it's valid because it's the promise of the living God, and as I'm sure I have mentioned on a couple of occasions anyway, God always keeps his promises. So this promise that the Lord would go over the Jordan before them is still in the background when we come to Joshua chapter 3, and we're going to see that vividly portrayed for us in our text. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Now understand, this is different. This is a change from the whole of the 40 years that the people of Israel spent in the wilderness. We know from the time that they left Egypt and made their way up to the shore of the Red Sea, they were led by that pillar of fire and cloud that went before them most of the time and on at least one occasion circled around behind them to protect them from their enemies. That's been the means by which the Lord God led them through the wilderness, but now something different is happening. Now the Ark of the Covenant has been built, and the tabernacle has been put together, and there's a whole new marching order for the people of Israel. Generally, the Ark is at the center of the temple, the temple is at the center of the camp, and there were very specific instructions about which tribes would set out first and which would fall in behind them, and then the priests would come along with the ark and with the other furniture of the tabernacle, and then six more tribes behind them. But on this occasion, unlike what you may have seen portrayed in Raiders of the Lost Ark, this was a one-time deal, on this occasion, God said, I'm going to put the ark out in front of the people. And when you see that going through, which is something they never saw, when the ark moved normally, the, the Levites collapsed the tent that housed it over top, and they never saw the ark of the covenant, only the high priest, and only once a year. But this is how the Lord would go before them from this time on. 
The last reference to the pillar of cloud that had led them since Egypt is in Deuteronomy 31. And now they are commanded, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length, which is roughly a kilometer, give or take, depends on how we read the word cubit, but it was about 18 inches. So 2,000 cubits is about a kilometer, and they are to leave that distance. They are to see the ark going through the camp and wait, and when the ark gets out in front of them by about a kilometer, then they are to get up and to follow. Do not come near it in order that you may... Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. As always, scholars vary a little bit on how to interpret this statement, but in his book, No Falling Words, Dale Ralph Davis, who was formerly the professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary, wrote, this way, with the ark a kilometer out there in front of the people, all could see. Yahweh's great deed, and all could know the path that they were to take. So he didn't want them surrounding it where the ark and the priests were lost in the midst of the mob. He wanted it out in front so that they would be able to see what was about to happen, which was going to be amazing, and so that they could see which way the Lord their God was leading them. Because as Joshua said, they had not passed this way before. The land that lay before them was unknown. Those who had spied it out 40 years before, other than Joshua and Caleb, were all dead. And they had come in from the southern end of the land. Now they're coming from the east, and they're approaching a city that they only know through the spies who went and met up with Rahab. And so that's new. But also this experience that Yahweh would go before them as a consuming fire who would drive out the people of the land. And we learn more about that in subsequent verses, but quickly, I want to address a question that was suggested by Francis Schaeffer in his commentary on the book of Joshua. Was God unjust? Was it unjust for Joshua to go in and drive out the people who were in the land? Schaefer suggested that this was a gigantic question, and he was writing in 1975. And if it was true then, it's even more so now. And you don't have to spend much time on the internet before you're going to run into somebody who says, well, this is genocide. You Christians and Jews worship a genocidal God, and this is horrible, and you should have nothing to do with this. So I think we need to address the question, but the question is answered for us by Scripture itself. Long before Joshua led the people across the Jordan, God had said when he made covenant with Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Now that's Egypt. They will be sojourners there and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, that's Egypt again, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
And it's that last little statement, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, that gives us the reason why this was not unjust. Francis Schaeffer went on writing, many of the Canaanite cities have been dug up, and one can see that the statuettes which were worshipped by the Canaanites at this period were overwhelmingly perverse, which is a pretty polite way of describing the artifacts that we have found there. The worship was wrapped up not only with complete rebellion against God, but with all kinds of sexual sin. The statuettes were as pornographic as some of today's worst pictures, and in its violence, their culture became equal to ours. Remember, this is 1975. So in Moses' time, God said, all right, it's time now for judgment. And this reminds us that there is death in the city in our own culture, too, which is a sermon for another day. But Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So when we're tempted to say, well, if things in our society, if things in our world are so bad, why doesn't God judge? We need to remember what Paul is saying here. We need to remember that the purpose of God's kindness and forbearance and patience is not because God is some sort of cosmic Santa Claus who likes to wink at the sins of the people he created. It's because he wants to give us time to repent. He wants us to understand that if we do not turn away from sin in this time, while God is being merciful and gracious, then we're storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. As God's righteous judgment was revealed against the world of Noah's day, when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and then God said, enough. As God's righteous judgment was revealed against the Canaanites, when after 400 years of forbearance and patience where they only got worse in their idolatry and in their behavior, Finally, God led his people across the Jordan, and they were his sword to execute judgment against those who had presumed on his patience so long. So the question, was Joshua unjust? It's not really an accurate question, because this crossing, this conquest is the work of Almighty God. And that's why before they crossed, Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Be ready, Joshua is saying. You're going to a place that you do not know, and God is going to take you there in a way that you have never really seen before. But there's something else here that we may have missed when we heard this story, I don't know, 50 times in Sunday school and vacation Bible school as kids. In the 17 verses of Joshua chapter 3, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 10 times. 
The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned three times in just verses 6 through 8. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel so that they may know as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, Command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned so many times here in Joshua chapter 3 and again in Joshua chapter 4. It's mentioned so many times in connection with the crossing of the Jordan that it starts to feel kind of awkward reading this out loud. It almost seems as though the Ark of the Covenant is the primary actor, the primary character in this story. And it seems that way because it's true. The Ark of the Covenant is the primary actor in this story. It's not a story about how Joshua led the people across the Jordan River or even a story about how the people made their way across the Jordan River. That's something they would not have been able to do at the time. We'll see more about that in a little bit. It's a story about how God, whose presence was manifest among the people in the Ark of the Covenant, came to lead them across and to protect them from those floodwaters. In verses 10 to 13, Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And he's speaking not just to that generation, those people who actually crossed the river that day. He's speaking to all the people of Israel. He's saying, here is how you shall know that the Lord, the living God, is among you and that he will without fail bring you out, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into Jordan. Now realize to all of those Canaanite nations that were just mentioned, they had their own gods, in many cases multiple tribal deities attached to each of those nations. And their gods were made from wood and stone and sometimes metal. And their gods could not speak and their gods had not created the world. Their gods were not Lord over anything. But Joshua is to make sure that the people know that this ark, this covenant which is going before them is the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. And it's passing before them into the Jordan. Jesus Christ is Lord of the nations. And we know that the nations have always been his inheritance. And we don't need to ask, does he have the right as the potter to make of the clay whatever sort of vessel he wants to do? He does. And so the Lord of all the earth has decided that this land will belong to his people Israel, to the descendants of Abraham, And he wants them to know that so thoroughly that he's going to do something really incredible. When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing 
and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. I saw a little illustration as I was preparing for this message where it was a cartoon of the priests carrying the ark, approaching the river, and one of them says, have you thought about how silly we're going to look if nothing happens? But they didn't have that problem. God had commanded them. And I think this is so unique because they're walking towards a raging river. We'll see more about that in a minute. And they're carrying this ark of the covenant of God, and they're not told, approach the river and then stand still and wait for what's about to happen. They're called, just keep walking. And when the soul of the first priest who is carrying that ark touches the water, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap, which I am told is not something that waters do. But neither do storms calm themselves, or dead men walk restored out of tombs. These things are miracles, and they do happen when the Lord of all the earth visits his people with deliverance and salvation. And that's what this is about. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into Jordan. So God has commanded his people to do something which they would not have been able to do. And then he leads his people going before them into the flood. Verses 14 and following. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water. And just in case we thought that maybe this is no big deal, some of you have been to Israel, and you've been to the Jordan, and you've been to that spot where supposedly John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And if you were there at a certain time of the year, that river was maybe 15 feet wide and a foot and a half deep. And you could walk across on the rocks. But it was not like that in antiquity. The modern nation of Israel draws so much water out of the Jordan for all of its irrigation projects that it chronically has very, very little flow. But we're told by Joshua, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. And in fact, the river at that time was probably a mile wide, quite deep, and covering a mass of tangled brush and jungle growth, which is something else that's not there anymore, but it was in antiquity. So here's this raging river, enough of a flow to sweep away anything that would step into that current. But as soon as the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Not only that, not only did God stop the waters, and, and honestly, I think there's some exegetical work to be done 
that the waters piled up where Adam, the city, the town of Adam was, and that the people crossed on dry ground behind Joshua. Verse 17 goes on to say, Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now they kept that one kilometer break between themselves and the ark, and I just wonder, I wish the detail was in scripture, but it's not. When the priests went down into the river, down into the dry riverbed, and stood there, I wonder if the people parted about a kilometer on either side of them and walked around as they made their way over to the west side of the Jordan, the Bible doesn't say. But just as their fathers had passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, Exodus tells us that very specifically, when fleeing the wrath of Pharaoh, now too they had seen with their own eyes the salvation of their God. As they passed through the Jordan River at flood stage and did so on dry ground. Now you'll read in some places that there has occasionally been an earthquake north of the area where the fords of the Jordan are located that has very temporarily cut off the flow of the Jordan. But that's the Jordan as we know it today, not the Jordan at flood stage. Not the Jordan River that covered the whole of that valley. And I want to be clear, this really happened this happened just as Scripture says it did. This is a miracle. This is the work of God. We cannot explain it. There's no point even trying. We cannot make this into a metaphor, and we dare not relegate it to the VeggieTales file. Ralph Davis wrote, The object of this text, then, is to impress us with the adequacy of God. And how can it impress us with the adequacy of God if we just give it some sort of a naturalistic explanation and say what the text is saying? That never really happened. The point of this text is to impress us with the adequacy of God, to grill into us that God is not merely a three-letter word of our Christian jargon, not merely the honorary leader of our club, but is the living God who works and intervenes and comes and saves and rescues and counsels his people in all their perplexities. He is indeed the Lord of all the earth, not some little league deity. So we must renounce our tendency, and I love his wording here, that's why I'm reading this quote. We must renounce our tendency to punify God to carve him down to our stature and to limit him to our possibilities. We cannot raise ourselves from the dead. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said, because I lay down my life, I am able to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down willingly and I can take it up again. God can do things that we cannot do things that we cannot explain. We cannot explain the resurrection of Lazarus either. Or the calming of the storm on the sea or the feeding of the 5,000 or any of the other miracles that scripture describes for us. But when we try to offer up some simple human explanation, 
We punify God. We make him small. You may remember a line from that old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that says, Our helper he amid the flood. And that's referring specifically to verse 2 or so of Psalm 46, but it applies here. And indeed, as God helped Israel, leading them through both the river and the sea on dry ground, he continues to provide deliverance and salvation for his people today. And he does it in just the same way. The Lord, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of heaven and earth will go before you. Remember what the angel said to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Joshua. For he will save his people from their sins. The living God has been and remains among his people And as the Ark of the Covenant passed through the floodwaters of the Jordan to deliver his people and lead them on to victory, the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And just as those people so long ago trusted God whose presence was manifest among them in the Ark and in the covenant which it bore, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Because the covenant is no longer two tablets of stone kept in a box covered with gold, Jesus said his blood is the new covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of the many. And so in this season of Advent, We say with John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.